Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you give us these object lessons, these reminders, and you tell us to pause, to be still, and know that you are God. Lord, we've just learned from this mother hen and the story of surrounding that baby's birth that you care for the smallest life forms in this world, the ones who are helpless, and you care for us as well. And so guide us to see how we can care for those around us and serve them just like those baby chicks served and just like that mother hen serves every day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every once in a while, my wife goes to the Goodwill and she picks me up books. I like history books. And as she read the title of this one, it must have caught her eye. It says, A Secret History of Empire and War, The Imperial Cruise. And I had read another one called Flyboys before it, which really showed real how, how heinous it really was before the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Um, the, the fiery pyromaniacs we were to basically uh, make a checkerboard across the Japan and then eventually fill it in with fire but as a napalm. And so as I, I watched that, I read that, she got me this one, and I thought, well, this ought to be interesting. The Imperial Cruise starts off real slow, but eventually it gets into a story that I found very interesting. I mean, it's a story of, really, a, it shows a piece of the puzzle that I think I didn't understand before, and one that I am totally offended by. So if you're offended by this, then, then maybe you're on the same grounds as I am. But it, it tells a story of a group of people that originated in the Caucasus Mountains. They're called the Aryans. And this Aryan theory believed, this Aryan race believed that it was actually the, the main shapers of civilization. They were white-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, tall stature, some of them, sturdily built. And they would go from civilization to civilization, changing those cultures basically by bringing about catastrophe or, or barbarism, warfare, and eventually they would set up a new order in each one of these cultures. And this book documents through primary sources, even presidents and other people who actually believe this, how it would go from the Caucasus Mountains all the way to Germany, which became the Teutons then. You can look up the Teutonic Order. And then eventually it would go over to the Anglo-Saxons, and then they would go further west to America, and then from America, then the next jewel to conquer would be the Silk Road of Asia. And it would go all the way around back over, and it would, it would go to the Caucasus Mountains and beyond to back to the Anglo-Saxons or England. So as I read that, I thought to myself, man, do the people really believe this thing? I mean, I, the superiority of the races? Because it says in here that really there were three things that, the white race was founded to do. It was, to, it was actually to establish all civilizations. It was to maintain its pureness, its color, basically, whiteness, and then civilization would be maintained. And then when it would lose its whiteness, civilization would be lost. It totally documents this. And as I got to that point, I said, I don't know if I want to read this anymore, but I'm going to keep reading. And I kept reading, and it showed how not only did this belief exist way back and many years ago in some writings uh, after the time of Christ, but it also documented how Ben Franklin wanted the U.S. seal to be two of the founding fathers of the Aryan race. Um, it, found, it showed how Thomas Jefferson believed in this, Teddy Roosevelt, who believed that the Aryan race had gotten too weak, and so it needed to be robust, right? And so he's this hunter out there, you know, they were taking pictures of him out here and there, and he really was not that way before they took all those pictures. He became more of a rancher and all of that. But it talked about Roosevelt and how he literally believed that the extermination of races was okay because of this theory. Eventually sending troops and ships over to Japan, which was in its glory day at the point. Actually, it was, it was at a peak of civilization. It was very much into poetry. Um, it had the samurai, of course, were there. And, and it, was, it was at this, they believed, um, they were their island to themselves, that they wanted to, the Japanese wanted to keep their culture pure. And here comes these ships, and they basically threaten them. If you don't open up your port, we're going to basically bombard you. We're going to call ships from England, uh, English, English people over there in India and other places, and we're going to basically surround you and destroy your island. And so the book was interesting. I had always grew up with U.S. history classes. It didn't mention anything about this and didn't mention anything about our imperialistic designs towards these other places and didn't put this piece of the puzzle in there. Why were we so bent on circling the globe with with our 
democracy or republic. It lists off many generals and government officials who believe this way, and they all basically believe that eradication and domination were the destiny of those who were of a different race than them. Might actually help shed some light on what's going on recently, isn't it? I mean, these types of strifes and things that are going on now are long ago established through some of these belief systems by even some of our presidents of the United States. So I was shocked by it. And I was shocked by watching as there was a striving and desire to rule over each other. Being the goal of a pure people would be to rule over other people. Well, that desire for ruling, I wish I could tell you it was over with. We obviously still see it today. From east to west, there's still this desire for power. There's still this desire for ruling. We have shootings even yet again this week. Oftentimes, we pray for peace, yet the strife continues, often on racial grounds. The goal sometimes is to keep fighting because we're different than each other. We can't put behind us the things that have happened. And if you're shocked by this whole coup over in Turkey, you don't really be. It's, it's really part of a whole idea of creating chaos and then dictatorship. So we have religious strife. We have different belief systems clashing with each other. We have political strife. And I'm not going to say anything about the looks of both of our main candidates, blonde hair and blue eyed, but, but you can do the... You can do the math there and figure that one out. The strife and the pain in nature that we see, even in nature, as we look out to God's beautiful nature, we see the strife and the chaos going on there. And we sing these songs about the Prince of Peace, and, and we want it to all end, but when will it end? The Bible gives you one sign. This gospel of the kingdom will go to all the world, and then the end will come. There is no room for the imperialism. There is no room for a superiority complex of one race over there. There is no room. The gospel knows no class, knows no nationality, knows no differences when it comes to that. The gospel is for all nations, all the beautiful sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Do the DNA test. You'll see. I mean, the Germans and the others who tried to promote the Aryan theory should have known later on they would figure out that basically we're all the same except for a few differences. You look at the blood of all of us. We are from the same creator. And so when is it going to end? The answer, when the desire of ages comes again. He's going to judge. He's going to serve. And Ellen White makes it clear that this concept of bigotry and this concept of showing separations of classes and all that is, has nothing to do with the gospel. The Jewish people themselves have been the, made the depositories of sacred truth. And if you think it's just on racial grounds, we have grounds of people thinking they're better than each other because of what they know as well. And this was happening in Jesus' day. Even before that Aryan theory and the Teuton theory, Phariseeism had made them most exclusive, the most bigoted of all the human race. Everything about the priests and rulers, their dress, their customs, their ceremonies, traditions, made them unfit to be the light of the world. Whoa, wait a minute. Didn't God give all of those things? Well, they began to see them as, as basically we have the truth and we are the only ones and you have to basically come to us and be subjected to us. If you look at the strife that takes place in the Gospels, basically between the Jewish authorities and Pilate, I mean, it was really about superiority, trying to basically gain the upper hand on this ruler to get what they wanted, which was the death of the Son of God. And so... All of their customs were not bad in and of themselves, but they began to look to themselves as, we have these, therefore we're better than everybody. It's not that the customs are bad. It was that they, in their hearts, were bad. They looked upon themselves, the Jewish nation, as the world. We're the world. We're all that matters. But Christ commissioned his disciples to proclaim a faith and worship that would have in it nothing of caste or country, a faith that would be adapted to all peoples, all nations, all classes of men, regardless of what we look at, regardless of our socioeconomic status, all peoples would hear this gospel. So now you know why I'm a little bit offended by this book. I'm offended, but I'm also under the realization of, you know what, this is probably, this type of thing is what has caused some of the differences we have, and we need to be able to work through those, talk about those, and lay them aside and say we are one people in Jesus Christ. I enjoy your church family here very much. It's, I mean, I have all the different blends of food we bring together for potluck, all our different personalities and backgrounds, we are here. 
we are one people. And if the world ever gets to the point where it goes back in this direction, might as well take me off to a concentration camp because this is what I'm going to stand up against because the gospel, the gospel considers this anathema. If I offend you and you think that there is a superiority of races, then you might as well find another church. I have reason to believe that this type of bigotry that exists even in our world today, it leads to only one end, basically bloodshed and death, not peace. And so we have to take this message of Jesus that she's talking about, this faith that knows no peoples, no nations, no classes of men, we have to take it to the world in haste, in haste, because something is going on in our world. We're living in these temporal times. We're living in times of darkness. We're living in a world that, as we know it, will soon pass away. And what's going to be left after that? Our little crowns, our little kingdoms, our little chiefdoms, our little places of of somehow we think we're over somebody else, none of that's going to remain. The only thing that's going to remain, not the money, not the precious metals, not the jewels, not the search for jobs, not the houses, not the searches for prestige and clothing and other things, nothing is going to remain. Why? Because none of that's going to remain because we all know the end of the story, don't we? These things are burning up. We're going to use this building, we're going to use our time, our means, our talents while we have them. That's true. We're going to use them but we're not going to worship them. We're going to worship the one who gave them to us. Because once we start worshiping things, then it's very easy then for people to become less value than what we worship. So our things become more valuable than people, and we thingify people and just discard them and say, oh, they're not of any value. This whole crown of Jesus series is about how we want to take off our earthly crowns and and see by faith that we have a crown of life, a crown of life that extends life to others, that extends happiness to others, that says this whole world is going to pass away. Let's not fight over these things. Let's use them to spread the gospel. Can you imagine at the end of time, there we are, they shut a building like this down, or maybe put a puppet preacher in here for you, and and you say, I'm not going anymore, and and you begin to meet in houses. That's really what we need to begin planning for. And as elders, we need to develop a contingency plan. But you start meeting in houses. Then they start shutting down your buying and selling capabilities. And then, then the next thing you know, you feel totally helpless. And God wins you a convert of one of your neighbors. Next thing you know, you've got the internet again. You've got the phone. How unstoppable is God's gospel message going to the world? It's unstoppable. For where there is even one person with a lamp burning bright in their hearts, there is hope. And so this gospel will go to all the world and the end is there coming and we know these things will be burned up and these things that we have are nothing compared to what Jesus offers us. I was sitting there this morning in just a few moments of pause hearing the birds sing. The wind blow through the, gray, the, the pines outside my window resting just, just for a few moments. And the thought always comes to me when I do that. You're having a little taste, not very good taste, not, not a full taste, but a little taste of heaven where you won't have any worries or cares or sorrows or pains where there'll be no more striving. And so I wrote a poem and I'm not going to share it this week. Maybe I'll share it next time. Basically telling God, I want to pause today and hear the morning song of the birds because that is really what keeps me from as I watch the things that are going on around me, from going basically berserk in my mind sometimes, like, look at this craziness. And that keeps fear from enveloping me, is when I take that time to pause and say, I'm a child of the king. The other people are children of the king. They just don't know it. I want to help them know it. And so the world is coming to an end. All that will be left is our hearts and the hearts of those who we have helped along the way. Last time we talked about being kingdom seekers, ones who don't worship things, that that recognize that they're valued beyond what they wear, beyond what they have, and that they're God's glorious children. Today, we're going to look at how out of this recognition, we're to be servants of the Most High. We're to be servants, not just of, of grudgingly doing things week after week, but of happiness, of joy. Because in serving him, we do find true happiness. The things that we have now are not going to last forever. Look at this quote from Jesus. He says, and seek, and he uses a special word there in the Greek. I didn't find it very many other places, but it's this idea of plotting out something or worshiping almost to the point of. 
Sometimes in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, it's used to, in reference to worshiping God. And it says, And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, or be of a doubtful mind, a downcast, meteor mind that's kind of always kind of falling down. Don't worship what you can eat or drink or be of doubtful mind all the time. You know why I don't watch a steady diet of people that critique other people or critique this or that or look into a lot of different, I would say, some of them are well-founded theories, some are conspiracy theories. I don't watch a lot of that. I'm aware of it. I know some general trends. The Lord puts in my path books and things I need to know as far as putting some of these pieces together. But I don't spend a lot of time doing that because then eventually I'm looking for the next fear fix. I don't want that. I want to have a peace that passes all understanding. I don't want to get to the point where my mind is always downcast and doubtful and, oh man, this is happening and that's happening. It's happening, I understand. But the world already has that. You don't come to Jesus to get that. You come to get the peace that passes understanding. And then you can face those things. You can face those truths of history. You can face the truths of history that is unfolding in front of you. But he mentions not to worship or plot as to how you're going to go about getting all this and all of that. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These things will pass away. These things will not last forever. And I still remember years ago when I lived in the Midwest, and this is a this is actually a combine that my wife and one couple of my kids are on right now in the picture there. They were really little. I was looking at my Facebook pictures and there's all these little kids, you know. I mean, just, in fact, uh, Micah looks like Michael in the pictures. And this is a farmer there and he's taken around the field. But I still remember years ago hearing stories from these old, if you will, farmers. Some of them were, were probably in their 60s. Some were, I, I remember one older farmer, he was in his 80s at the time. He talked about cutting his lawn with a sigh. You know what that is, right? big old sickle, and, and all these different things they used to do, right? And how they used to harvest the field that way. And here's this combine, right? This modern piece of machinery that costs basically uh, your farm income for many years to pay it off. And you keep on taking out loans every year on the seed and everything else that you plant out there. But, but this, these old farmers would, would talk about their stories. They would share them, sometimes at the fellowship meals, sometimes at their home or on their front porch when I'd visit with them. And I remember hearing stories, for instance, of the German POWs. We had those, right? That would, we actually would bring them over to the United States after we, we captured them, and we'd put them over in some of these places in the Midwest in concentration camps. In fact, in Holdridge, Nebraska, there was one. There's, there's still an old uh, piece of brickwork sitting there from where they had this barbed wire and all this stuff, walls and everything there. There's still a piece of, of masonry sitting there, and it has this historical marker there. And I, hear, I hear, would hear the stories from these farmers of how they would bring these Germans onto their farm and how they were hard workers and everything and all this, and, and, and we would try to treat them right. And, and I thought, well, I got a lot better treatment than the concentration camps over there. But, but nonetheless, they would tell these stories, all these stories. And I remember hearing of the financial calamities of the Great Depression, how some of them actually survived that in the Midwest. Uh, and when you got basically your ground to produce, then they had all kinds of strange bugs and things that would come in and decimate. And, and so they would talk about these survival stories. And one time I was, I, I, I was sitting next to somebody at a fellowship meal. He began telling me his story of the Korean War. And in the Korean War, he was stationed over in, in South Korea. He was basically over there. And if you read some up on the, on the Korean War, you know a lot of casualties you can, you can find on both sides of this whole thing. But he spoke of of their currency. He, he told me one time, don't get tied to this old world because just think about what happened to me over in Korea. And he would tell the story of how in Korea they would sometimes, uh, the places where they mint the money would be bombed or whatever and they'd have to change currency from time to time. And initially, you know, you look at currency like this on the screen, this, this yen, this is one yen down there and, and you can find it on, of course, Wikimedia and other places, but these pictures. But he said we would, we would oftentimes have to change currency for several reasons. You'd have, you'd have uh, infiltrators, you'd have things being bombed. And he's like, I remember, still remember the last time that we, the, the last currency we had, and I think he, he mentioned he kept a piece of it. We were basically as, as a nation gathering our dead and heading home. And as he was leaving, he still remembers people running up, the Koreans running up and throwing, here, take me with you. And they're throwing this money at him that is now worthless. Basically, uh, 
when they left um, and you had the base nearby and all, they had a certain currency in the base and it went out into the culture around them. And now they're leaving and now the money that they have is, is worthless because your main trade center is the base. And they're out there just saying, take me with you. And they're throwing these, these huge wads of money that they saved up for who knows how long to, to, the, to the soldiers. And the soldiers are like, it's not worth anything. I mean, wish I could. You know, they were wishing, this guy still wished that he could have somehow taken some of them with me. He didn't know what happened to them. But as I remember hearing that story and doing some research this week on it, how this currency change would take place periodically, but what would be the value of the banknotes once those soldiers and once all that pulled out? Once the currency changed again, it's worth nothing. What was worth something the other day is worth nothing now. We know all about that in the United States with a, with a paper currency that, that basically doesn't have enough gold to back it. And we've heard this whole thing of how the, the gold is not, we don't have enough gold to back our paper currency because we keep printing it. Eventually, it could be worth nothing. Something could change tomorrow. We live in uncertain times. And so he would always say, what is our focus on? And that's mine. You know, if our focus is on this world, it could change just like that, couldn't it? It could change when that when dear Midwestern member left Korea and those residents were throwing money at him and it basically put a, a video in his mind forever. The lesson was there. That money was worthless. We can't put our faith in these things. And he'd always say, we need to trust in Jesus. I think we could believe that uh, individual who gone through that experience. That's the same experience we should be having. We should be serving Jesus now. We should be serving each other now. Jesus says in Luke 12, let your loins be girded about, your lights burning, not out, not fading, burning, bright, and ye yourselves like men that wait for their Lord, and he will return from the wedding. And when he comes and knocks, you will open up to him immediately. We are living in these times when Jesus is preparing to come back. The wedding is already underway. And if you notice some key words here, it mentions being girded about. That's servant language. That's when Jesus, when he, remember, he, he took and he basically took off his outer robe and in the book of John, he girded himself and he served them by washing their feet. That's the same word there. We're to be those types of servants, just like Jesus. It says that eventually he will return and they will open immediately to him. Why? Because they know Jesus, that's why. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice, open the door unto me. I will come in to him and he with me. Right? Read Revelation 3.20. You'll find that by the time Jesus comes, we've already opened our hearts to him. We already know him on a daily basis. We've heard his voice. Because if we don't, then none of this can happen. Our lamps will go out. And if you are doubting as to whether or not this has something to do with the church. It mentions the lights burning, the marriage. That's all linked to the ten virgins. That's all linked to the ten virgins parable. And what are we told about that? At the appointed time, the bridegroom came, not to the earth as the people expected. A lot of people want to make a, a perfect society, want to have a Reich, if you will, back in the 1930s. Want to be able to find a way to have God's kingdom here on earth. A thousand years, if you will. But if we look carefully at the text, Jesus already had a kingdom years ago. He's never lost it. He's always had it. The only jeopardy he had was when he laid down his life for us, and basically since he was innocent, there was no jeopardy of his kingdom. And so at the appointed time, the bridegroom came, Jesus came, not to the earth as the people expected. Some expected it in 1844, some expected it in 2000, but to the ancient of days in heaven, to the marriage, the reception of his kingdom, Remember he said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, therefore go make disciples. When did he receive that authority? Remember? Mary was going to go ahead and clutch his feet and he said, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet not ascended to my father. Well, by the time he meets with his disciples, he's already ascended to his father. He's been given all authority. He's been given a kingdom. The book of Acts really just shows an inauguration of that kingdom. Like a king coming with spoils of war. And so they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. That eventually happens to the Jewish nation back then. It happens to each generation who chooses not to, by faith, go in with the Lord. They were not to be present in person at the marriage, for it takes place in heaven while they are upon the earth. So where is the bride in Revelation right now? You say, well, we're the church, we're the bride, but Revelation says, like a bride beautifully adorned for her husband, that city comes down. 
There is a place he's preparing for us right now. We are to be there by faith. In that way, we are his bride. We are actually right there in, uh, by faith. So we're, this is to take place while we're on the earth. The followers of Christ are to wait for their Lord. We saw that in Luke. When he will return from the wedding. That's what Luke says. He's at the wedding. He returns at his appearing. They are to understand his work then. To follow him by faith as he goes in before God. To wrap up this world's history, if you will. It is in this sense that they are said to go into the marriage. Right now is a crucial time to be the people God would have us to be, to serve those around us, to, to lift up Jesus because we want them all there when that city does come down. We want them there by faith now and then in reality when it takes place. So what does Luke say? If she quotes it right there, it's in brackets in her own writings. We read it before. It says, And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, you will open immediately to him. So the preparation now, while the bridegroom tarries, is to keep our lamps burning, is to basically serve until he comes back. And Revelation tells us there's something else that we can do more specifically, especially as a people. All right, young people, here's your FBI answer for your sheet. If you're looking for the answer for what question down there that says uh, the scripture that's being used for the FBI scripture, it's Revelation 14, 6 through 7. Part of watching and sharing, and the, we can open our Bibles here in our congregation and read it. Part of watching and serving is sharing. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Notice that. Now also notice before this, this is an angel flying in the midst of heaven. We typically look over that and just kind of paint a picture of three angels flying, kind of like what we'll see on the screen here in a minute. But notice it's in the midst of heaven. And also notice that it's taking a message to the world. Everlasting gospel. Who was the gospel given to? It's given to the church. Matthew 28 makes it clear that the church is to take the gospel to the world. Not angels. Angels will help. But we, it is our primary task to take the gospel to, the, to our fellow men so that somehow, it's almost like someone said, you know, one hungry person shows another hungry person how to get bread, all right, or fish or whatever you want to use. Somehow in us, in the telling, helps people believe it. It's kind of like Jesus becoming one of us. God is one of us. Look at this. He's very serious about saving us. And so the church has been given this responsibility. That's why we come together from Sabbath to Sabbath is to encourage each other to then go out and to share and then keep, not necessarily just filling a church, but, but keep relationships strong here and out there so that we can all go together to that place. And so as we look at Revelation 14, the church is what this is talking about. They're in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. I mean, if you want to do a little extra uh, homiletical license here, if you will, then the church's focus is basically a message from heaven, and they're wanting to take people to that heavenly place. And they say with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. How do we give glory to God? We give it to him in our bodies. We give it to him in our worship. But what we also do is, his, if you look in Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus 34, you find we have that very character of God in us. The only way we can have that is by inviting Jesus into us. And so we have that in us for the hour of his judgment has come. By the time we proclaim this message, basically time is running out. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We are the ones... And if we want to get into an exclusive thing, there is no exclusive club. It's for every nation. This message that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has is for all nations. And so God's people at the end of time are not an exclusive club. It's actually a place, a meeting place. We become a meeting place where people can come and have access to the message while we have this place. And then we take that access also to the world around us. They're biblically inclusive. Biblically inclusive. Not this strange inclusiveness that's going around in culture. Biblically inclusive meaning we want you all walking together with us on this path. But to walk together, the Bible says, can two or three walk together unless they be agreed? So we have a path that has an agreement in Jesus Christ. We walk that together. 
and we point people to him. Some will not choose to take that path. Some are going to cling to sin. Some are going to cling to possessions. Some are going to cling to relationships. But we must share with them. Your whole Sabbath school quarterly is about that. This idea of what is the community of faith to be like? Community of believers. See, we share. God himself is the only one who knows the day and the hour of the Lord's return. And God himself is the only one who knows the impact that we can have on hearts that we planted seeds in. But we share. And we become these servants of happiness who share this message and we serve all those people with this message. And in doing that, we find true happiness. Why do we find true happiness? Well, we serve and we share and that brings joy. Just joy to you? Me? It's joyful to see somebody who has been changed by Jesus. That's joyful. But really, in what you're doing is you're sharing in the joy of heaven. Jesus said there's more joy in heaven over how many sinners who repent? One sinner who repents. So heaven itself rejoices when somebody that you've influenced or they've influenced, we all are working together with heaven. It's not like me or you by ourselves here. This heavenly mission takes residence in somebody's heart. Heaven just rejoices and is happy. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about. That same joy that he describes and the lost sheep is the same joy that we're supposed to have when we serve. And so that simple faith of one person going to heaven, bringing that much joy, brings us joy as well. Can you imagine Jesus coming? And there you are. And you're just, you know, you're there with some family and some friends that you've maybe influenced or they've influenced you and you're just happy as can be. And then he says, who is this? And you look behind and it's not just who is this one? Who, is, who, who are these? And there's all these people. That's what Revelation 14 says later on in the same chapter. Blessed are those who die in the Lord henceforth, for their reward will follow them. Disciples, that word followers, disciples. There will be disciples that are long beyond your time on this earth and my time on this earth, regardless of whether we see Jesus or not. There's going to be people behind us that have been influenced. What emotion is going to hit you at that time? I don't know about you. I mean, the crown's going to go down. I'm going to go down, probably. Even as I talk about it, I mean, I almost well up with some, some unmanly tears. But joy. God, you're so good. I never even realized that person I talked to on the bus who was going to commit suicide is right here. Just because I talked to them. And he shows you the sequence of events, how if you had not done that, you know what those sequence of events would not have taken place, but that one influence that you had, seemingly so small, and you all know how small seeds are because you've planted gardens recently probably or seen gardens that have gone from that little dinky seed to this huge plant. That one small thing you did brought them to the kingdom. And so that's the joy that Jesus is talking about. Jesus says, blessed, same word, you get the idea of happy Sabbath, right? Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Happy. We're waiting for the Lord. We're not standing on a wall, sounding a trumpet every time every little thing comes out of our crack and crony of earth's history and the news release. We're sounding the trumpet saying, look, here he is. There he is. The very one I've been telling you about. There he is. Can you imagine Noah, how there he was. Here's the, here's the flood. I'm not a crazy man here talking about a flood that's never going to happen. And yet, look at God's mercy, how he brought my family into this boat. And now, we redo the whole human race. And so, we have that same happiness. And we, we see Jesus and say, it wasn't just some book in a story. It wasn't, it, I knew it was real then, but now I see it. And the happiness envelops you. And he finds you watching. And then he does something. Notice it says, he girds himself. Who is the he in this? It goes from singular to plural. He serves them. The servants are the plural. The he is the Lord. And so the Lord girds himself again and makes you sit down to eat and serves you. That's where that long silver table comes into play when you see these visions of Ellen White. This beautiful long silver table and a place is there for you and for me. And she describes the crown on our heads. This beautiful crown where it says, has stars in it. All right, guys, is it just a jewel or is it really a star? I could carry the less either way, but can, can, is my God big enough that he could put a little star there that shines forever? 
that he could take something as powerful as the sun and put it down into a jewel size and put it in my crown. He's that big, isn't he? I mean, that's how big the sun is to just some little dinky thing anyway. This beautiful crown on your head. You sit down at the table. You're, he's telling you, pause. Just let me serve you. And you look around and you see everybody who's with you. And you see your reflection in that silver table. And you think, I am not worthy. That's what he's describing here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to serve you. You're going to be so happy to serve in this world, but you're going to be even more happy when you get in my presence, and I'm going to serve you again. And so he goes on, and he tells them basically to be the servants. And know this, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. Oh, I've spent my time watching for coyotes. You don't stay up very long sometimes waiting for them. You go to sleep eventually. But he said, if you had known our other man is coming, you would have watched and not suffered your house to be broken. If we would watch for thieves and different things like that, then why aren't we watching for him? That's what he's challenging us with. Be therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes in an hour when you think not. This is a beautiful thought. You need to be servants of all, for in serving we find that true happiness both now and in the future. But one question is, what does this look like in the church? You've already seen your own reflection, but as a group, it looks like something like this. It's a beautiful quotation. The very best credentials we can carry is love for one another. All strife, all dissension is to cease. God will not accept the talents of the smartest or even a superior race, according to this foolishness in this book, this Imperial Cruise book. He will not accept the most the talents of the smartest, the most eloquent man, if the inner lamp of the soul is not trimmed and burning. It's okay to be eloquent. It's okay to be smart. But you have to have that inner lamp trimmed and burning. There must be a consecrated heart and consecrated surrender of the soul. I would say daily. She says a thoughtful hour each day focusing on Jesus, which is going to bring about a consecrated heart and a consecrated surrender of the soul. When we look to Jesus and him dying on the cross for us. We realize that, yes, in Revelation, he has the, the beautiful candlesticks. We want to have a trimmed and burning lamp in our hearts. But we also recognize that we need to continually be reminded of this. All I do is remind you. I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm just reminding you of things you've, already taught, you've probably already learned. And I'm reminding myself, because long ago, we know the story. Tell me the story of Jesus. We sang that song of the cross we know the story of the whole trial before the cross. We know that of the glee of those who put him on the cross. They said that he had no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. The magnitude of that statement. Caesar, the one they despised. The Romans who they despised. They had no king but the one they despised. It's just it's a contradiction of terms. But they utter those words. They condemned Jesus on the main charge of he claimed to be a king. There are other things as well, but, but he claimed to be a king, Pilate says, right? Are you a king? Pilate questions this man, finds no fault in him, and yet feels so powerless against the hatred of these people who want to crucify Jesus. I mean, powerless? Are you kidding me? Pilate, a man who would kill some of his own family members, who would, who would rise to power on the backs of death? And yet, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus serves them by dying for them. Even when they think that they are doing a disservice to him, they are fulfilling every single word that Jesus spoke. If you look at the Gospel of John, especially after the Last Supper, thus it was fulfilled, thus it was fulfilled, thus it was fulfilled. There is nothing that's happening in the last scenes of Christ's ministry and his death for us that was not planned ahead by Jesus himself. And so they spit upon him, they mock him, they begin to put this crown of thorns upon his head and this, this purple robe. And they also, it describes, they departed, they, part, they were going to part his clothing. A total fulfillment of Psalm 22. And if that wasn't enough, you talk about a baby chick being found, all the sequins being just right for that baby chick to be found in the children's story so that it could have a mother and all. It, it, the timing was perfect on all that. But the timing was even more perfect on the cross. Because even the inscription that was written on the cross proves, proves the plan of salvation is so detailed. The inscription was written, if you look in the Gospel of John, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Three languages. 
that you find at certain points in history were not even in existence, but they were in existence at that time. So that everybody who would walk by of various cultures and various backgrounds would read it in their own language, would then be able to ponder and say, was he king of the Jews? I'm a convert to Judaism. Is he my king? We killed, I killed my king? Imagine that echoing back to wherever they came from after Basically, that's why Pentecost has such a rich harvest. People were pondering. People were reading the scroll of Isaiah, even from Egypt. And they read this. And they are converted. Thousands in one day. Eventually, a great persecution rings out. It scatters the believers, decimates some of the numbers, we're told. Thousands even died during the great persecution of Saul. But the gospel begins to go to the world, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And we are sitting here today because it got here. It got us wherever we are at in whatever language group we heard it at for the first time. And so we are reading the story of Jesus today, his servanthood, his death on this cross, his resurrection, his soon coming, because of this seemingly small detail of the inscription of our king dying on a cross. Isn't that amazing? A whole other sermon right there. Doesn't that bring some, somewhat of a joy to your heart to think he planned it all the way down to that detail so that I could hear the gospel in my Bible today. From the manner of his birth to the kind of death and the inscription above his head, he had us planned in his heart. He gave his all. He, was, he happily served us. And imagine the joy of, the, of seeing the thief come to know him at the cross. He saw us coming to know him as well. That's the love he wants us to show to those around us. There was a story that I came across this week. Very interesting story. Not one that you see all the time. Kind of exhibits this, this idea of servanthood. Unexpected source. County jail. Unexpected source. County jail. At least eight persons were behind a locked door in a holding cell in the district courts building in Weatherford, Texas on June 23. When the sole guard watching them slumped over in unconsciousness. So you've got these inmates, eight of them there, basically in lockdown and holding cell. And they look out and they see this guard slump over. Now, all I remember that if you break out of a holding cell or a place that you've been put, then you're going to basically go into confinement and maybe even your sentence is going to be extended. You could even be shot in some of these places. So these inmates describe how he just fell over, inmate Nick Kelton told the news station, looked like an act. He could have died right there. The men who were all shackled tried shouting for help. So they're not just locked up, they're shackled too. They tried shouting for help and no one came. They then broke out of their holding room, risking their own lives to help the guard who wishes to remain anonymous. A little embarrassment probably. We were worried that they're going to come with guns drawn on us, Kelton said. Especially you find yourself over the top of a guard. After de determining that the guard had no pulse, How'd that information get to them? I don't know. Someone must have had some kind of background at some point. The inmates screamed and banged on the doors, hoping to attract the attention of deputies upstairs, knowing with certainty that there's a possibility that I could be shot when they come down here now. Parker County Sheriff Sergeant Ryan Spiegel said he thought the inmates were taking over when he rushed downstairs. That's exactly what they were fearing. And he found them standing over the guard. The guard had keys, Sergeant Ryan Spiegel said. Had a gun. Could have been an extremely bad situation. Still unsure what had occurred, Sergeant Spiegel ushered them in back into their cells. Then the deputies administered CPR and paramedics arrived and shocked the guard who regained a pulse. The inmates watched as life returned to the guard who had been chatting and joking with them moments before he collapsed. He's a good man, said Kelton, who described himself as an addict facing his fourth prison term. Captain Mark Arnett said the men likely saved the guard's life. He could have been there 15 minutes before any other staff walked in and found him. Kelton said he and the other men were just doing the right thing. It never crossed my mind not to help whether he's got a gun or a badge. If he falls down, I'm going to help him. They risk their lives to save. And when you're in that situation, sometimes you see the guard as your enemy. And yet what did they do? They served him. They saved him. And as I think of stories like that, as I think of if we can do that as a human race, to one another without really any severe religious, any major religious impulse. 
then surely we can do that amongst ourselves. We can have this consecrated heart that serves out of love, that serves without fear, that serves and, and it brings about happiness to the other person and to us. And so that story of Jesus has a ripple effect all the way down through time, doesn't it? We've watched the story of Jesus, maybe some of us for many years. Our hearts, have they been changed though? When he comes and knocks, will we open the door? Will he find us ready? I know this is the sweetest story ever told because I am, myself have experienced it. And in a few moments, we're going to play a song. But before we play that song, I want to ask you a few questions. If you've never asked Christ into your life before, never said, you know what? Here I am. Take control. Or in the words of this old thief, take control of this mess. It's out of control. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do so today. If you have done that and asked for forgiveness and asked him to keep guiding you, but yet you lack assurance that things are okay with you and God, it's kind of a bad place to be, especially when Jesus right when he comes. You don't want to have that, that, that discrepancy of heart where you know it, but you really don't have the assurance of it. Then I would encourage you to say, you know what, Lord? Here I am. Here I am. I want to trust you. Some of us who have let him guide our life and have the assurance, yet there's hindrances along the way that have kind of distracted us. Let's lay those down as well. And some of us who at this point don't feel like there's anything distracting us, let us just praise the Lord and say, Lord, here I am, take control again. So as you sing this song, whatever your commitment is, just sing it to him and say, you know what, Lord, it's so sweet to trust in you. I'm going to invite our pianist to come and to play this. And as we sing it together, I know you might feel happy right now. I want to, you know, whatever you feel, then just recommit to him. Whether you're standing, whether you're kneeling, whether you want to come to the front while you're singing the song, it's up to you as far as what that's going to look like. I'm going to kneel here. But as the song plays, as we sing it, just recommit to him and say, I want to be your servant, whatever that looks like to you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in sinful faith to plunge me neath the cleansing healing blood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust him, 
Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that Thou art with me, wilt be with me till the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you sent Jesus to show us what a true servant looks like, to show us how we can serve also and gain that beautiful joy and happiness that Jesus had while he was serving us, even dying on the cross. So Lord, for those who have not been your servant before, I place them in your hands and I ask you to lead and guide them the rest of their days so that they can be your servant, especially if they've given their heart to you for the first time today. For those of us who had hindrances, we want to lay them down at your feet and say, Lord, if they've gotten in the way of my service to you, take them away. If they can be used, then use them. And so, Lord, take everything we have and all we are, help us to serve you. And those of us who just joyfully want to say, thank you, Jesus, we want to recommit our lives. We want to continue to have that assurance in our lives Lord, please provide that now so that when the trials that come ahead of us, we will still have that assurance, that blessed assurance that you are ours and that we're still trusting in you. Lord Jesus, it's so sweet to trust in you. We look forward to seeing you. But guide us each day to be servants of yours to those around us until that day when you serve us again and we see everybody around us that we have touched because of you. Guide us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name.